Stand by. Stand by. You have entered a locked orbit with Precinct Omega. Your data has been lodged and recorded. You have one message. Playing message from Precinct Omega. It's Friday the 22nd of October. My name is Roby Jenkins. And my name is Bernard. And this is the news. The Evil One, that's all one word, The Evil One is running a Kickstarter called Roma Ad Astra for 3D printable STLs of science fiction Romans. North Star Military Figures has announced a new plastic box set with Metal Command for Light Dwarf Infantry for the Oathmark Fantasy Battle Game. Sally Forth have had to cancel their Rising Tides Spy-Fi Kickstarter. Cybor have also announced new dwarf releases with a range of new heroes and bear-riding dwarfs. Reaper has released a new set in their Bones Black range called Blood Demons. War Cradle have announced with the new 3rd edition of Wild West Exodus a brand new 2-player box set called Showdown at Retribution. Puppets War have a new range of 28mm jump packs and jetpacks. Cromlech has shown photographs of their new Orc Clanker, a giant walker machine. And Vanguard Miniatures have announced new releases in their 6mm sci-fi ranges and in their spaceship ranges. Now you may wonder what this eclectic range of different news items that I have cherry-picked from the dozens of potential new releases, announcements, Kickstarters and Patreon opportunities uh, have in common. And the fact is that in fact in many cases, they do not have all that much in common, but they all speak to a particular theme, which I've touched upon before, but it deserves looking at again, it deserves looking at in more detail, particularly in the context of the last two episodes I've done over the last three weeks about 3D printing. We're going to talk about intellectual property, intellectual property theft, infringement, rights, fair use, all that kind of stuff. Big headline, I am not a lawyer, and this is not legal advice, but this is Freezing Omega. So let's start off by, by unpacking some words that people use in the context of this subject. So we're going to talk about piracy, we're going to talk about IP theft, we're going to talk about IP infringement, uh, and then we're going to kind of talk about everything else. Uh, and as I said, not a lawyer, not legal advice. This is going to touch upon the legalities of some of this stuff, but what I really want to delve into is the stuff that goes beyond law, where stuff is or is not ethical and where stuff is or is not moral and why that matters. Because for a lot of people who are getting into discussions about piracy and IP infringement in the world of miniatures wargaming, often 
they're not really discussing whether something is legal or illegal. What they're really talking about is how something feels to them and whether it feels right or whether it feels wrong. And I kind of want to give people a sense of the bigger picture so that when you're considering within yourself whether something is right or wrong, you have a better grasp of what the different intricacies of the whole picture within the actual industry and the community are not to change your mind necessarily, but to give you some reassurance or to give you some food of thought, uh, some food for thought, which you can use to understand other people's perspectives within the same discussion. So let's start off with uh, the, the legal side of things. You've got piracy, IP theft, IP infringement. Now let's deal with the last two first because there is no, okay, I was going to say there's no such thing as IP theft. There kind of is. But theft, in law, requires the intent to permanently remove something from somebody's possession. So that old famous video clip that we used to see before uh, movies on VHS and DVD, that whole would you steal a car, would you steal a purse, but you would steal a movie, attacking movie piracy. Strictly speaking, not theft because if you own an intellectual property and somebody copies that intellectual property, they haven't taken it away from you. IP theft would occur, for example, if somebody broke into the storeroom of a miniatures manufacturer and stole their moulds. So not only had you taken away a physical thing, you'd also taken away their ability to reproduce their intellectual property. But that would be dealt with in the law as theft. It would be a theft of an irreplaceable object. Therefore, it's theft. IP theft isn't a thing. It's become part of the general discussion. Interestingly, I understand from reading around, and, and as I say, not a lawyer, so I've been reading around blogs and articles about this from people far better informed than me, and it seems to have become a more popular term because it was widely used by the Trump presidency, particularly uh, in their attacks on China and Chinese manufacturing, whom they accused of IP theft. So, what is the actual legal problem here? More often than not, the question is either piracy or IP infringement. Now, in our country, you, know, you can go down in the weeds of this, and I, I want to keep this focused on our industry, our hobby. You know, our interest here is is tabletop wargaming and, and miniatures wargaming. So, when we're talking about that, piracy is when you are taking somebody's design and reproducing it fully. So recasting is arguably a form of piracy. Uh, stealing somebody's STLs and reproducing them without their permission, that is piracy. Um, if you meticulously reproduce somebody's pre-existing design, so the classic example is Games Workshop or somebody announces a forthcoming miniatures release. Somebody takes all of the photographs of that release and they painstakingly reproduce that as an STL and they either sell that or they give it away for free. Is that piracy or is that IP infringement? Well, technically, it's infringement because they have used their own uh, capacity to interpret a product in a new way. Now they might have been trying to effectively forge 
that product. Uh, but it's, it, it's a forgery. It's not strictly piracy as far as I understand it, but it definitely is IP infringement uh, because they are taking intellectual property that belongs to somebody else and they're using it for their own purposes. So as I get it, as I understand it, and I'm sure if you know better than me, stick it in the comments, please, absolutely. I'm more than happy to be corrected. But as I understand the legal side of it, that's where it is. Now, I, I want to kind of draw a line, first of all, and go piracy, bad. As far as I'm concerned, as both a consumer and a producer of products for, for miniatures wargaming, piracy equals bad. When somebody... Uh, shares the PDFs of my books for free on a site for people to download so they don't have to pay me to read those books, that is bad for me. I, I, am not, I am losing out on income. People may say, oh yeah, but I wouldn't have downloaded those books if they hadn't been available for free. Yes, but you can't control then who else is downloading those books. Your position might well be that but you had enough curiosity about that to download it and read it, if your curiosity wasn't sufficient that you actually wanted to buy the book from me and play the game, why did you download it in the first place? If there was something in that that you wanted to read, to own, to possess, you should have paid the money for it. And I'll throw it out here to people. Honestly, if you want to buy one of my books, but the PDF is too expensive, and I freely admit that, that you know I pitch the prices on my PDFs, moderately high compared to other games in the market because I, that's how much they need to be for me to make a living. But if you absolutely cannot afford to buy those books but you desperately, desperately want one, drop me an email. Okay, I am not that difficult to reach. Contact me on social media or whatever. Let me know what your position is and I will make arrangements. I will make sure that you can get that book. Either it'll be for free or it'll be at a discount that you can afford or whatever. You and I can have a chat and I will put that book in your hands in a way that is fair to you and to me. Okay? So you don't need to go out and hide and, and, and hunt down a free PDF on, on some Russian pirating website. But that is just stabbing me in the gut. Come and talk to me and I'll help you out. All right, that's piracy. Piracy, bad. You, you recast somebody miniatures, bad. Always bad. I don't care who it is. I don't care how big the company is, how, how expensive those miniatures are for you to buy, how poor you are. If you are recasting somebody else's miniatures, that is bad. That's my line. Okay? But let's move on to the question of IP infringement because that is much more interesting. And in that context, I want to take a look at this week's news items in a bit more detail because they really speak to this question of IP infringement on a lot of different levels and you can sort of unpack aspects of both the legal and the ethical and the moral side of this as we go through it. So let's take a look to start with with the new forthcoming release from War Cradle. Now Wild West Exodus has been on such a journey in its life of existence and I am really pleased that it still sits with an active development team at War Cradle which is, is the development uh, arm of Wayland Games. And Wild West Exodus, if you've not come across it, began as a kind of uh, Victorian sci-fi take on the Wild West. It was kind of, you know, yeah, Victorian sci-fi is right. Not exactly steampunk, uh, a little bit more uh, sort of magical and improbable than that. Um, and 
War Cradle have kind of taken that original concept and they've turned it up to 11. You know, once upon a time it was you know, like steam horses and, and uh, electrical guns and now we've got full-on sci-fi. I mean, it is, it's almost beyond Victorian sci-fi. It's, it's pretty much a blend of, of true space opera sci-fi and a vaguely Victorian era setting in the Wild West. Okay, um, and I got nothing against that. I think it's really cool. The new box set looks really interesting. Showdown at Retribution is a really uh, interesting new release that's coming from War Cradle. Uh, I would love to get my hands on a box, but again, my painting backlog is so enormous, I can't imagine I'd ever actually get those miniatures painted. Um, but the designs look really interesting. I've played the game a couple of times. It's second edition of the game I have played. It was moderately engaging, didn't, didn't set my mind on fire, but it, it was an okay game. Um, and the miniatures look awesome. So if you're into that thing, go check it out. It looks really cool. They announced it on the 30th of September. I'm not sure when the release is going to be. But the reason that this is relevant to our discussion is that it's completely safe. Legally, morally, ethically, all those things, Wild West Exodus is an example of a, an intellectual product and a miniatures range that is sitting firmly in its own box. Uh, it is in its lane, it's not crossing out into anybody else's. They've got their own miniatures range, they've got their own rules, they've got their own aesthetic that doesn't really touch upon anybody else's. The closest that it comes to is Malifaux, but they too are very distinctive in their own particular way. Um, and even the, 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 the scales and styles of miniature sculpting between Malifaux and Wild West Exodus, very distinctive. So, you know, that is a safe option. You know, you want to go down miniatures manufacturing or game design in a way that, that stays away from this conversation completely, that's a really good example of how it is done. Now let's look next at Sally Forth's cancelled Kickstarter. Now I'm not going to go into the reasons why I think the Kickstarter failed. I don't think it's got anything to do with any of the intellectual property issues. But it was really interesting to look at the miniatures that they were releasing. A lot of them were very reminiscent of specific named characters from TV series, movies, from the great era of spy-fi um, that you would probably be familiar with. Now, when it comes to miniatures, so much lies in the paint job that one can gloss over a lot of stuff. And it's how companies like... like, like um, Crooked Dice and Hassle-Free can get away with pushing at these limits in popular culture imagery because without colours, it's hard to say that a miniature is definitely calling from a particular uh, pulpy source or, or from a TV character or anything like that. But there was an exception in the Spy-Fi release and that was the Lotus Submarine miniature. Anybody who remembers, ah, do you know, I've... I've come here to, to the video and I forgot to check it was one of the Roger Moore movies it was The Spy Who Loved Me okay a James Bond movie The Spy Who Loved Me has a uh, Lotus Esprit that, that flies into the water and turns into a submarine and a miniature of that was part of the site the spy-fi release that that Sally Forth were including in their Kickstarter now that's a really interesting case 
when it comes to the intellectual property because the Lotus Elise shape is the intellectual property of the Lotus company. Its transformation into a submarine was managed and engineered by the Lotus company, but probably more likely to be the intellectual property between Lotus and Broccoli Productions that were behind the movie. Ah, I don't know where it lies. Where I do know that it does not lie is with Sally Forth. And yet they were making a miniature. Now, as I say, I have no reason to believe that as a result that the cancellation of their Kickstarter was anything to do with that miniature um, or that they were in any way subject to any kind of legal threats. As far as I know, they cancelled the Kickstarter because it wasn't attracting the interest that they wanted in order to make it work. But it does raise an interesting question when it comes to the reproduction in miniature of real-life objects that are subject to intellectual property protection. And the obvious example is in you know, World War II, Vietnam, Cold War era vehicles, tanks particularly, that are meticulously reproduced. Now, are those designs aesthetically in the public domain? They aren't. But at the same time, the companies who develop that intellectual property or the governments that own that intellectual property aren't chasing down miniatures manufacturers for producing toy versions of them. And even, you know, toy manufacturers are producing those in large quantities without any kind of IP challenge from the owners of that intellectual property. There's probably a whole depth of background as to why they're not, but it, it raises immediately interesting questions to the developer of where does the line lie? And this is the first point that I wanted to make and why I drew this example out, is that once you get away from the clear space that's being occupied by somebody like Wild West Exodus, you immediately start to run into areas where you're potentially getting into a poorly defined area of what constitutes intellectual property and what doesn't, what's protected, what's enforced, and what you can get away with as a developer. And this is interestingly illustrated in the Roma Ad Astra campaign. Now, as I've said before, often I'm not that inclined to, to bring uh, Kickstarters that often into the news, and unless they've got something significant to offer, and particularly when they're just a Kickstarter for digital files. But this one did have something interesting to offer. I mean, first of all, you know, I do love the aesthetic of sci-fi Romans. They do look very cool. Uh, but the thing that leapt out at me is that amongst the weapons that the guys in this Kickstarter are equipped with is one that bears a striking resemblance to a LAS rifle design that has appeared in Games Workshop's intellectual property. And immediately one must ask, why? Why would this company that has designed its own miniatures from scratch with inspiration from historical Republican era Roman armies, but which are nevertheless completely new designs, add something to those designs that is instantly reminiscent of intellectual property that belongs to a different company. I'm not going to answer that question right now because it's coming up. But it feeds in then to the products of companies like those I mentioned, like Puppet Swore and Cromlech, 
where they are producing those aftermarket products that tap into some aspect of the design of Games Workshop so that those backpacks from Puppets War are clearly intended to fit on the backs of Space Marines. And the Orc Clanker from Puppets War, even more so, wrong, the Orc Clanker from Cromlech, even more so, isn't even a bit, it's an entire model. Brand new, completely not drawing upon the designs of any other company, but definitely tapping into an aesthetic well established by Games Workshop. So you've got the, the Puppets War stuff that are completely original miniatures, but nevertheless designed to be compatible with somebody else's IP. And then you've got a completely original miniature from Cromlech, which is designed to be compatible with somebody else's aesthetic. And it's reasonable now for us to ask why. Why, when you've got companies like War Cradle, like Wayland Games, who have generated a completely new setting, new miniatures, new aesthetic, totally new designs, why are other companies like Cromlech and Puppets War and Vanguard producing miniatures, products, bits that rely upon the context of some other company's intellectual property to work, and in this case, Games Workshop. And again, I'm going to come to the answer to that question in due course. But before we get to that, let's look at the two other companies that I mentioned in the news, which was North Star Military Models, who have released their light infantry dwarfs in plastic with a metal command, I think, um, and also Cyborg, who have released their own dwarf heroes and mounted dwarfs, dwarf knights on bears. They are all pretty cool miniatures. I encourage you to check them out. So the North Star Military Models Dwarves are specifically designed for Oathmark, which is a fantasy battle game uh, published by Osprey Games and written by Joseph McCulloch, I believe. Uh, it's been very successful. But Oathmark is interesting in that it is, it's a new game, it's a new design, it's a new setting, but it's clearly intended to attract the audience of those people who used to play Warhammer Fantasy Battle and who never made the transition to Age of Sigmar because Age of Sigmar is a very different game with an extremely different setting. Warhammer Fantasy Battle was very traditional fantasy with very traditional historical battle aesthetics. Oathmark is a new game. And yet its design is clearly intended to implement the same aesthetics as Warhammer Fantasy Battle in a new way. And the dwarfs that are made for Oathmark, they're dwarfs. They are classic fantasy dwarfs. They're the fantasy dwarfs that everybody has riffing on, has been riffing on since before Tolkien. Yeah, I mean, Tolkien sort of embedded that image in mind, but he drew so deeply heavily from Scandinavian mythology to illustrate what those dwarves were like and who they were and how they lived. You know, it feels like we've had fantasy dwarves forever, but we haven't. And Games Workshop drew heavily upon that imagery established by Tolkien in Warhammer Fantasy Battle. And then they took what they developed in Warhammer, Warhammer Fantasy Battle and they retained and expanded that in Age of Sigma. And 
you know, there are people who have been trying to cry foul on Games Workshop's Warhammer setting for decades, always saying, oh, well, they're just ripping off Tolkien. Do you know what? The question I would put to you as we move on to the next part of this discussion is, who owns an aesthetic? So if we look again at Cromlech and Puppets War, are they equivalent? Puppets War's designs aren't actually grimdark sci-fi. They're actually more pulp sci-fi or space opera sci-fi. They're quite clean lines. They've got no skulls, they've got no chains, they've got no spikes. They're, they're smooth sci-fi. They are sophisticated sci-fi. They're compatible with Games Workshop's models, but their aesthetic is not grimdark sci-fi. So they're playing with compatibility, but their intellectual property is actually quite separate. If you look at Cromlech, meanwhile, now Cromlech have created something completely new in the form of their Orc Clanker. It is an entirely new model. But there's no question that it is knee-deep in Games Workshop's Orc aesthetic of this, you know, clinker-built, jury-rigged, smashing monster with, you know, rivets and, and metal plates all over it and, and pistons and stuff. You know, it is absolutely deep in Games Workshop's own aesthetic. But can Games Workshop claim ownership legally, ethically, morally of the grimdark aesthetic? Or is Cromlech legitimately entitled to explore that aesthetic in completely new creations that just happen to riff on the same sensibilities, the same artistic concepts? Now before we move on, I do want to bring up Reaper again. Um, because I, I a lot of this conversation tends to revolve around Games Workshop. And again, that's, that's really important to this topic, but it isn't just a Games Workshop question. Reaper's latest release is interesting, but Reaper's history is more relevant. Now, Reaper Miniatures has, for decades, been making miniatures that are highly, consciously compatible with the Dungeons & Dragons game and its many official settings. But Reaper has no official relationship with Wizards of the Coast or Hasbro or Dungeons & Dragons or anything. So what they've been producing are things that reflect the descriptions given in the text of these books, but that are distinct from the artistic depictions and often given their own names. And a classic example, which we've seen not just from Reaper, but from multiple different manufacturers, is the Beholder. You know, the idea of a floating spherical monster with a big fanged mouth and various multi-tentacled eyes sprouting off themselves is not something that Hasbro or Wizards of the Coast can own, as far as I understand. It's an idea that has been riffed on and explored by dozens of companies. You can't reproduce one that looks exactly like the one in the Dungeons and Dragons rulebook, and they can't produce art that base, that's based on a miniature that's made by somebody else. It goes both ways. Just the concept isn't something that can be controlled. But that's within law. And as I say, 
I'm not a lawyer, this is not legal advice, and I've probably got things wrong. I'm far more interested in the ethical and moral questions, which is where we're going to move next, because the latest Reaper box release is Blood Demons. Now, anybody who's familiar with Games Workshop, Fantasy, 40k, Chaos range is going to know that the idea of Blood Demons is, is a trope that Games Workshop has played on heavily for many years. But is it something unique to Games Workshop? When you look at the designs of the new Blood, Re Blood Demons from Reaper, it's hard if you're embedded in the Games Workshop aesthetic not to go, oh, those are clearly Bloodthirsters. Not Bloodthirsters. Bloodletters. That's the one. Bloodthirsters, big ones. Bloodletters, little ones. Okay, those are clearly a version of Bloodletters. They look very similar to the second and third edition Bloodletters before they went all back to being sinuous and stuff. But if you're not invested in the Games Workshop aesthetic, you're going to see those designs and go, oh, those are clearly devils from the Watsy Hasbro Dungeons and Dragons setting. And they certainly do, if you look at the physical description of devils and demons in, in Watsy, they fit that description very well, but they don't actually represent any of the artistic depictions of demons and devils. Where I'm going to here is that the perspective of the observer is going to influence what they think the influences are of any given thing that they are looking at. They can't perceive in an object an influence with which they are not themselves familiar. Okay. So that's something that I'm sort of adding there to take away. So let's do a very, very quick summary of the legal position on all of this. And it is very quick, not a lawyer, not legal advice, but Games Workshop is litigious. Uh, some would say famously so, some would say notoriously so. They are not afraid to defend their intellectual property. And although they have wound their neck in a bit from their worst excesses, they are still keen to defend their rights. So if companies like Vanguard, Puppets War, Cromlech were actually legally infringing on Games Workshop's intellectual property rights, I can assure you Games Workshop would tell them to stop. The fact that Games Workshop has not told them to stop tells you in very big lights that as far as Games Workshop's lawyers are concerned, the works of these companies are legal. Straightforward. But as far as the discussion online goes, actually most people don't care whether or not it is legal. What they're really interested in is whether it's ethical or whether it's moral. And I want to touch upon those two things. So first of all, let's talk about what I think is the difference between something being ethical and something being moral. So ethics that are something that apply to a particular group of people who hold a particular status. So as, for example, a, a chartered member of the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, as I am, um, I am held to certain ethical guidelines in my practice as a human resources professional. Uh, and if I breach those guidelines, I can be brought before an ethics council and potentially stripped of my membership status. Okay? I am held to those ethical standards. If you are not a member of my institute, you are not held to the same ethical standards. So you can do things that, for me, would be unethical. Okay. So this is why we talk about things like legal ethics and medical ethics and the ethics uh, around 
teachers or nurses or priests or whatever that means. Okay, so ethics applies to a certain particular group of people. And in this case, we are talking about the manufacturers of tabletop miniatures. And even when something is legal, there may be a question on whether it is ethical. So an example I haven't specifically mentioned up till now, because they haven't got any new releases, so they weren't in the news, is RTLW, which is a Polish, I believe, company um, that make a wide range of very nicely designed, very well cast, 28 to 32 mil miniatures in a firmly grimdark aesthetic. Grimdark sci-fi, very 40k compatible. Particularly, they include a number of miniatures within that range that are obviously inspired by characters within the Black Library range of novels. And that's where we get into this question of ethics. For some people, they come across the RTLW miniatures, they see the characters from the novels that they love, miniatures for those characters that are not available anywhere else. They're not made by Games Workshop, they're not put into the market by anybody else, and their response is, this is fantastic. I can include my favourite Inquisitor, my favourite Arbitrator, whatever, my favourite Commissar, I can now include in my Imperial Guard army, or whatever it is, by buying them from RTLW. That's one reaction. One reaction is, this is great. A thing that I want is available to me, and I can buy it. The other reaction is, that is atrocious that they are using the hard work of the authors and the publishers and, and the people behind Games Workshop who invented these, these places and these people and these adventures, they are using that for their own profit, to create miniatures that otherwise aren't available, and that's terrible. Where you fall on that spectrum between that's great and that's terrible depends on how you perceive the ethical framework within miniatures wargaming. Is it or is it not ethical to use other people's imaginative hard work to create products that you sell for your own profit, which isn't then shared with the people whose original hard work created the inspiration. Now, generally speaking, the answer is that it depends. It depends a lot on to what extent that imagery and that imagination has entered into a sense of public ownership. To what extent it is considered to be privately restrained to the owners of that property, or to what extent the general public at large, the consumer public, has come to believe that they possess an ownership of that character. And you can absolutely see an equivalent to that in things like the fan fiction community or in the uh, slash fiction community because that really represents the point at which the consumers of a product perceive a personal ownership over characters and settings and situations that they can create new content that tells stories about those characters and within those settings that satisfy them in a way that never occurred to the author or even might offend the author but the perception of the consumer is that they possess an ownership of those characters. So for you, your personal ethics within miniatures wargaming will vary depending on the extent to which you possess a sense of personal ownership 
over those characters. This is why two people can have such diametrically opposed opinions on whether it is okay that RTLW produces a miniature that is obviously Commissar Caiaphas Kane from the Black Library books. One person will say, I love Caiaphas Kane, I would love to have that miniature in my army, hooray, well done RTLW for producing it, I will buy it and put it in my army. Because their sense of ownership is such that it is divorced from the original owners of Games Workshop, Black Library, Aaron Dembski, Bowden, whatever. Okay? Meanwhile, you'll have somebody else who is equally passionate about Caiaphas Kane, but perceives the ownership of that character to still sit very clearly with Black Library and with Aaron. And any attempt to interpret or expand or grow on that character that isn't controlled by the Black Library and Aaron to them is offensive and unethical. So I'm not saying that there's a straight answer. There isn't a straight answer. Your perception of whether something is ethical or not is going to vary depending on your experience. And that's when we drift into the question of morality. So I've been talking about ethics as us consuming within the industry of miniatures wargaming. When we get to morality, we're then talking about an internal experience, not an external one. So you and I may disagree about our ethics, but whether something is moral is fundamentally something that only I can decide. So if you are on the fence about buying a product that you feel ethically crosses a line into somebody else's intellectual property and you decide to do it, you may feel that you have done something immoral. Okay? You didn't do anything unethical. Somebody offered a product legally on the market. You paid a fair price. You took that product. That was an ethical transaction. But because you may feel that the existence of that product transgressed ethical boundaries by then participating in that unethical business by buying the product, you have been immoral. So those are the differences between them. Wow, we've gone deep into the philosophy of ethics and morality and there are probably now, if I hadn't annoyed the lawyers enough by getting all of the stuff about intellectual property infringement wrong, I've now annoyed all of the philosophy majors who are gonna tell me that my understandings of ethics and morality are wrong. Ah. But before I finish, Let's go back to that ethical question because there's a big part of this that is industry related that we need to talk about. And this, if anything, I think is probably the most important part of the conversation because people don't necessarily think of uh, the ethical implications of products that are, are produced within or around or adjacent to the Games Workshop aesthetic with all of the information immediately in their minds. And this is really important. Games Workshop is huge. In our market, in our industry, I always talk about them being the elephant in the room. They really are. They are occupying so much of the market. They are defining so much of what the market does, what it is, how people write games, publish games, release miniatures, present rule books. It's all being influenced and driven by what Games Workshop thinks is right. Therefore, the fact that there are businesses, companies who are coming along and saying, hmm, 
look at this elephant in the room, how can I monetize this elephant to my advantage? Is not that surprising. The bigger a company gets, the more likely it is that people are going to seek to monetize their success for their own private success. And Games Workshop is not only a classic example of a successful company that people are trying to monetize, but they are within our niche almost at the point of being a monopoly organization. Now, legally speaking, the, the niche of our industry is too tiny for it to matter. And of course, there are other operators working on the fringes of the hobby so that Games Workshop doesn't actually count as a monopoly. But from my perspective as a designer and from the perspective of miniatures manufacturers within tabletop wargaming, Games Workshop in many ways functions as a near monopoly because they are so influential. What that means is that Games Workshop has consciously and intentionally created a huge market for their product. And it's very clever and they've done a really good job of it. They've had their trips and falls along the way and they don't always get it 100% right. But commercially speaking, they are a very successful company within their niche. And to be that successful, they've created this huge market and a market is hungry for content. The market is hungrier for content than Games Workshop has the capacity or the will to fulfill. And in fact, of course, it works for Games Workshop's benefit to create niches for hunger that they are actively not fulfilling because it creates new markets for them to explore in the future. You only have to look at the release of the Adeptus Mechanicus and the Gene Stealer Cult and the Sisters of Battle to see Games Workshop responding to customer demand that has been growing for decades. And it has to be a very careful balancing act internally at Games Workshop to say, yes, there's demand, yes, there's hunger, but is the market large enough that we can actually service that hunger, service that desire in the, the, the community of people buying our products? When it reaches the point where the answer is yes, a product is released. But there are loads of niches where from Games Workshop's perspective, it simply isn't worth their time and effort to service the demand. Classic example, Battlefleet Gothic. Okay, really interesting game, terrific when it was released, got worse as the development of the new factions came along and the Necrons basically killed it off. Games Workshop never followed up the success of Battlefleet Gothic because the demand within the community wasn't sufficient for it to be worth them investing the time and the effort in that product range. But there was still a hunger. That hunger wasn't big enough, the community of interest wasn't large enough for a company the size of Games Workshop to bother with it. There just wasn't enough for it to be worth their while. But it was big enough for a much, much smaller company, in fact several smaller companies, to be very interested in meeting that demand. So Games Workshop has created a demand. They've created a market by releasing the Battlefleet Gothic game and then effectively dumping it. They've created that demand and somebody will step in and fill that demand. A good examples, Vanguard miniatures that I mentioned before, and another one called Battlefleet Galaxy that's a, a one-person business like Vanguard, but rather than Vanguard that produces miniatures and then casts them in metal and resin, um, Battlefleet Ga Galaxy just does 3D printing 
of his own original designs. Original designs, completely new, but firmly rooted in the grimdark aesthetic and the aesthetic of battleship conflict that was created by Games Workshop in their Battlefleet Gothic game. Okay, so it's legal. Question is, is it ethical? Well, Games Workshop isn't filling the demand. The market is there. Somebody is going to fill it. Is that ethical? Well, you may think one or the other. As we've discussed, your mileage may vary, but I want to add this to your thought. Games Workshop is constantly growing its market. It is constantly growing demand, and it releases games when it believes there is sufficient demand for them. Necromunda, Blood Bowl, Aeronautica Imperialis, Adeptus Titanicus, these games were released and supported when Games Workshop believed that the critical mass of demand was sufficient, that it was worth them supporting it. They haven't released Battlefleet Gothic yet, and it's being that demand is being met by other smaller companies. The fact is, though, those companies are doing Games Workshop a huge favour. For two reasons. First, I mean, I've described small companies like those miniatures developers, like games developers like myself and Nordic Weasel and others, as Games Workshop's unpaid R&D department. We are exploring the phase space of miniatures wargaming that's adjacent to Games Workshop's products, producing new ideas, creating new random generation approaches, creating new concepts for games, or creating interest and demand in things like solo miniatures wargaming that Games Workshop has historically ignored. Games Workshop pays a lot of attention to what we are doing. Okay? They're designers, they're marketing people, their uh, developers, they are watching what goes on in the market because they want to learn from their unpaid R&D department. Plus, not only are companies like Vanguard and Battlefleet Galaxy allowing the Battlefleet Gothic community to continue exploring that game space and offering inspiration for future exploitation by Games Workshop, but they're keeping that community alive. Without new content, without new miniatures, Interest in Battlefleet Gothic and spaceship gaming is only going to die away and move to less Games Workshop-centred games like Full Thrust, like Infinite Dark, like A Billion Suns. Okay? But interest in Battlefleet Gothic is sustained by these companies that are deeply exploring the phase space of that game's potential. At some point, the market will be large enough and sustained enough that Games Workshop will pay attention, will go, thanks very much, I'm going to do that now. Now, what will happen to Vanguard and Battlefleet Galaxy and similar companies when that happens? Who knows? Okay. In many ways, not our problem, not their problem, not Games Workshop's problem. Okay. But ethically speaking, Games Workshop isn't being hurt by this exploration of their games phase space. Quite the opposite. They are being helped. Their future ability to exploit this market is being supported, sustained, and grown by people who do it for no compensation from Games Workshop. So it's not unfair that they receive compensation for that work from the market that they are servicing. So I'm not saying to you that that makes what they do therefore automatically by default ethical. Like I said, your judgment of where the ethics on this lies is going to depend on your sense of ownership and the community's general sense of ownership 
over any given segment of the intellectual market that we're talking about here. But it's something that's worth bearing in mind that supporting companies like Vanguard, like Battlefleet Galaxy, like Puppets War, like Cromlech, like ArtLW, that aren't afraid of, of crossing some lines into Games Workshop's aesthetic space, it sustains, creates, and builds interest in products that Games Workshop can monopolize in the future. But these episodes are always far too long when I'm not scripted and I'm just working on notes. I'm so sorry. So let's get to the end of this because I always say, so what? What about Precinct Omega? Does that mean that I'm going to start exploiting Games Workshop's intellectual property to my advantage? No. Um, I much prefer the Wild West Exodus approach. I like developing my own intellectual properties. I like working clearly and firmly a step away from what other people are doing if I possibly can. But that said, I still recognize the interest that people inevitably have in Games Workshop. As a result, you know, I have done things like create a game called Zero Dark Millennium, which is a small supplement that my patrons can get, which makes the Zero Dark rules that much more compatible with Games Workshop's products. And you know, I'm not gonna apologize for that, but, I am going to keep that separate from my public work. It sits behind the Patreon paywall, it's shared with my patrons in a light-hearted, tongue-in-cheek way, and it's a way to explore different ways of playing my game in different contexts. I'll throw it out there as well. I even do uh, a few simple adjustments or new additional rules that will let you play like Star Wars-themed games in Zero Dark. I lock them away behind the paywall, they're not accessible to the general public, they're part of the ongoing developmental conversation with my patrons. And, important, in both cases, what I do in the game is I tap into the aesthetic. The grimdark aesthetic has its own articulation. The galaxy far, far away has its own articulation. It is not Star Wars, it's not Warhammer 40,000, or the Dark Millennium, it is my own setting exploiting the aesthetic established by somebody else. I feel that's okay, but I'm conscious enough of the limits and the barriers that I do keep it behind the paywall. So if you'd like to have a look at Zero Dark Millennium or Zero Dark Distant Galaxy, uh, then you can come along and support the Patreon as well and have a peek at that. Right. That's everything I've got to say this week. Thank you very much for joining me and I will speak to you again next time. Warning. Warning. Docking clamps released. Decoupling complete. Thank you for visiting Precinct Omega Star Pharaoh. Safe journeys. Until next time.